0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cash Valley Parade of Homes, September 19th through September 28th, Thursdays and Fridays, noon to 8 p.m. Saturdays, 10 a.m. to eight p.m. Cash Valley Home Builders Association, serving the community and promoting ethical business practices in the home building since 1973. Information at CVHBA.com.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There are few remaining frontiers on our planet, but perhaps the wildest and least understood are the world's oceans. Too big to police. Under no clear international authority, these immense regions of treacherous water play host to rampant criminality and exploitation. Traffickers and smugglers, pirates and mercenaries, wreck thieves and repo men, vigilante conservationists, elusive poachers, sea-bound abortion providers, clandestine oil dumpers, shackled slaves, and cast adrift stowaways Drawing on five years of perilous and intrepid reporting, often hundreds of miles from shore, Ian Urbina introduces us to the inhabitants of this hidden world in his new book, The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. Ian Urbina is an investigative reporter for The New York Times. He's won the Pulitzer Prize for Breaking News, George uh, Polk Award for Foreign Reporting. Several of his stories have been developed into major feature films. One was nominated for an Emmy Award. Uh, Ian Urbina lives in Washington, D.C. with his family. He joins us for the hour on Access, Utah. Uh, Ian Urbina, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Appreciate you uh, taking time to be with us. Um, So Bill McKibben, writing about your book, says our planet is 70% ocean, yet to watch TV or read papers you'd have little idea humans ever ventured offshore. Certainly certainly true. What got you interested in, in this world?
2: I mean, I've always been, since I was a little boy, fascinated by the blue on the map um, in a sort of uninformed, um, unexperienced way. I didn't grow up sailing or on the water. Um, but then in grad school, I took some time. I was uh, in a doctoral program on anthropology and took some time away sort of procrastinating my dissertation. And I went and worked on a ship in Singapore, and that really kind of enlivened my curiosity about, mostly about seafarers and kind of the diaspora tribe of these workers who invisibly traverse the globe and and, um, are pretty essential to the world economy, but about which we know very little.
1: Um, You you word invisible there. Uh, Why don't we know more about this world?
2: I think there are a couple reasons. Um, One is geography. You know, it's uh, such a sprawling space and the the things that happen out there, both above and below the waterline, the creatures below the waterline and the people working above them um, are invisible to us landlubbers because um, it's just beyond the horizon. Uh, So geography is clearly one reason. I think um, jurisdiction is another in the sense that these Spaceships, if you will, you know, that happen to be on planet Earth and traveling capsules carrying people and goods um, are odd entities, right? They are often owned by a guy in one country and flagged to another country and... The captain is maybe from a third country, and the crew are typically from a fourth and a fifth country, and they're traveling through a space that really, i.e. the high seas, that belong to no country and all countries. And for all of those reasons, this, this zone out there and the people who work and traverse it are um, really just uh, far away from, from your or my consciousness, I think.
1: Uh, this is so foreign I, I was so fascinated to learn this uh because uh, we live in a paradigm of um nation states right and laws and uh, you know there's rivalries between those those states but it's uh but there is order uh so the outlaw ocean the title of the book this this is <laughs> as you paint the picture this is a wild west out there
2: yeah i mean it's it's and and you summed it up well i, I think it's it's outlaw more than illegal, you know, because it's it's extra legal, you know, and um, uh, not all that happens there is bad by any means. And in, in in some ways, it's more a void um, than it is an evil place. Uh, it's just a place where governments don't really go, and and it's almost like a border town of of yore, you know. And um, there are a lot of heroes and villains and And sometimes it's hard to distinguish between them, and sometimes they're the same person in different circumstances. Uh, But at the end of the day, there's a lively scene out there, 65 million humans that work in one capacity or another, either on commercial ships moving our tennis shoes and our iPhones and whatever else, um, or pulling fish from the water for you know, 40% of the protein that's consumed in some countries comes from that space. So there are a lot of people out there uh, working, um, and uh, and that's what drew me uh, for the book. Uh,
1: yeah, as you point out, extra-legal, there more is illegal stuff happening out there, but extra-legal as well, and just not a sense of order. And governments in fact, take advantage of this. You you write that the American government chose international waters to, for for example, dissembling Syria's chemical weapons arsenal. That's where they dumped Osama bin Laden's body.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is a convenient place uh, for its very extra legality um, if you want to do things um, in a way that uh, is removed from the prying eye of reporters or the tedious legalistic eye of advocates and lawyers etc and so yeah the examples you cite um i just add also you know in this sort of uh, extraordinary rendition period you know this program that the u.s government ran where essentially we were using proxy countries to do our dirty work and and sometimes in illegal, immoral, and brutal ways, extract information from people, be they terrorism, suspects, or otherwise. Um, often that had to occur in a, in a nation uh, that was willing to play ball with us, us being the U.S. government. Um, and at some point, as that story began to break and the world became aware of that program, uh, there was a shift to, to put more of these suspects uh, on vessels, even though the courts had ruled, you, look, if you're going to transport a, a terrorism suspect, you need to do, in an, do so in an efficient fashion. I, you put them on a plane or on a truck and get them to the facility where they have access to lawyer, and there can be some semblance of compliance with law. The other option is you put them on a ship, and you got a long route, you know, a long trip to get there, and that's a lot of time to interrogate. And that's just another example of the sort of crafty use that governments have made of this space. Uh,
1: one comparison that uh, that I've heard, I think uh, that you've made this, uh, would maybe illustrate this uh, this world is comparison to air travel, right? Um, airplanes travel through you know sp- sp- space, but air- airspace is regulated differently than the- than the oceans, and so that- that's produced a whole a whole different uh, world.
2: Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, I think there's a really important contrast to be studied in looking at the way that um, people and goods and and vehicles travel through that other uh, international commonly held space, you know, air air traffic. And especially post 9-11, but before it, too, there was a sort of a legal infrastructure and is a legal infrastructure that um, most nations comply with, um, that involves commonsensical things, you know, mandatory clarity on who's on that vessel, right? You know, a, a, a crew list, um, a pre-established uh, destination and clearance that you're allowed to go there from the destination authority. Um, uh Verification in some form that everyone got who got on got off <laughs> safely and didn't disappear en route. Um, now, jump over to the sea world. Um, there is this long, you know, reinforced through literature, cultural norm within seafaring that um, they're different. It's a different space, and the culture of the people who work there are different, and we go by different norms. Just on the vessel itself, the captain being... The authority in an unquestioning hierarchical way. That's true on a plane too, but not to the same degree as on a ship. And then also just the lack of tracking and transparency of, of what happens en route and and reporting where you're headed and um, all those things I listed. Crew manifests and these sorts of things—they're not the norm in in uh, most. Uh, fishing vessels, for example, long-haul fishing vessels. There's no expectation that you have to sort of report these things. And I think that's uh, illustrative, and it also gets to the core of the problem, which is how rampant abuses uh, can occur in an sort of endemic way.
1: As you point out, uh, uh, there there are economic advantages for this. There, there's If there's no bureaucracy out there, then you can do it cheaper. But there's also no protections or very few protections for, for workers, for example.
2: Yeah, I do, I do think like if you view the global economy, well, first of all, if you view this space from an economic perspective, right? You, you sort of assess it through the lens of the economy and what economic activity is happening there. And you you think about the fact that 90% of everything we consume comes by way of ship you quickly come to the realization that even though the ship is slower um, and a heck of a lot cheaper just from a fuel perspective than, say, putting it on a plane, the other major reason that um, that statistic um, is true uh, is that there are very few checkpoints along the way, and there's very little policing and bureaucracy that that. Um, taxes in the sense, metaphorically, taxes um, in terms of time and logistics headache and and just pure cost, um, when you move stuff that way. And there's just a lot less oversight, too, in, like I said, for the reasons we went through before, when the stuff gets to port um, and it's containerized or it's coming off a fishing vessel, it can move much more efficiently onto trucks than if it's going through an airport. Um, And so for all of those reasons, we as average consumers of all that stuff that comes that way um, benefit from, uh, uh, sort of tacitly benefit from the the hidden savings that come from this outlaw nature.
1: So everything's uh, connected. So when I'm eating my tuna fish, um, I guess I need to think about these factors.
2: Yeah, I think you do. One does, uh, I think it can be overwhelming and demoralizing and debilitating um, uh, if you think too much about it. But I do think it's it's a healthy exercise that we as um, Western consumers especially sort of need to think about and, and to the extent that we can and are motivated to try to figure out are there small things we can do or large things that um, maybe lessen our complicity in these abuses, you know, um, by choosing products that maybe have been vetted better and differently because they come with some sort of seal of approval that, that says in, in, in policy terms that, you know, this has... Uh, abided by a higher level of verification on a, on the supply chain. And that's, you know, we're all very busy and we have limited money and we're trying to get the best deal on whatever we're buying and we don't have a whole lot of time to study these things so rigorously. But, you know, everyone has to decide how much they want to do. But I think in general that exercise is, is worth um, uh, attempting.
1: Let's take a break, uh, and we'll come back, of course, more. Uh, Ian Urbina is with us for the hour. The book is The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. Some hair-raising stories here um, and a lot uh, lot of important information. Um, When we come back, I want to talk about uh, some of these uh, abuses that are out there in this extra-legal and sometimes illegal world, uh, including slavery. Uh, Ian Urbina writes that slavery at sea is, is booming. I wanted to ask Ina Brina as well, uh, his experiences being uh, on on board a ship for a long period of time, just that experience a lot of us don't have. More following this break.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And the Cache Valley Walk to End Alzheimer's, taking the first step to create a world without Alzheimer's. Saturday morning, September 21st at Merlin Olson Central Park. Registration details at act.alz.org.
1: Our upcoming member drive is focusing on the stories that change us. And I believe we all have those stories. I certainly do. We uh, encourage you to think about that. The fascinating ideas, the compelling stories, the useful information, all the ways that Utah Public Radio has enriched your life. And then consider making a pledge to UPR. And you don't have to wait till the drive begins. You can pledge right now to UPR.org, UPR.org. And thank you. Hi, it's Francis Lamb. This week, it's all about taking care. Why the powerhouse activist Cecile Richards loves baking pie. What Ruth Reichel found when she went to a center for people with disabilities, where food is medicine. And how to take tea time to a beautiful new level. That's the Splendid Table from
2: APM, American Public Media.
1: Sunday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with New York Times investigative reporter Ian Urbina. His latest book, fascinating book, The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. Uh, he uh, traveled around this world, uh, reporting this book for about five years. Um, they're uh, beyond, out in international waters. Um, there's a lot going on, and it's uh, not much reported, so this... This fills a need. The Outlaw Ocean is the book. I uh, should mention you can find uh, Ian Urbina on Twitter at Ian underscore Urbina, a lot there. And uh, there's a website for the book, theoutlawocean.com. You can respond to this program by emailing us, upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. So Ian Urbina, uh, there there is slavery at sea. Uh, tell us what the factors uh, that go into this and, and how this happens.
2: So it's it's a it's a radioactive term, right? Slavery. Um, so I always like to try to explain what I mean when I use it. I, I see slavery or human trafficking, labor trafficking as sort of a spectrum as in how it occurs. I think you have um, especially in the cases that I was looking at, the more acute, extreme versions where you actually have humans who are shackled. Uh, and um, one of the stories that ran in the newspaper initially and, and got the attention of Sec- then Secretary of State John Kerry and um, the Thai government was uh, specifically about a uh, a textbook kind of instance of, of trafficking where a Cambodian man was um, enticed uh, into Thailand by what there is called a labor broker, but essentially a guy who says he's got access to a decent job you want to come and I can get you across the border you don't need money up front you don't need papers it's a good job and in this case and this is the norm it's ostensibly in the construction industry for females it's ostensibly as a domestic working in a house as a sort of live-in maid the females are not actually destined for a domestic job They're, they're destined for sex industry and the males are not destined for a construction job. Those are taken by ties typically because they're good paying jobs. Um it's destined for a fishing boat. And um, so in this case, Lang Long, the guy who was shackled, um, decides to give it a go. He's desperately poor. This is a chance at something he's never had. Uh he gets in the truck, um, long journey across the border. He ends up at the port. Next he's on a boat with a bunch of other Cambodians and off they go. And that is a very common model um, in, on the South China Sea. And a lot of um, young men and boys are funneled into um, the Thai fishing fleet uh, in that same structure, uh, typically coming from... You know, Thailand is a relatively middle-class country, less than two percent unemployment, and Thais don't take the worst jobs. Typically, those are migrant workers, typically undocumented from Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, and they get funneled in in this same way. And in Langlong's case, um, he attempted to escape. One of the uh, fish, the first fishing vessel he was on uh, was caught. You know, he swam, he jumped overboard, and tried to swim to a supply vessel that had come near caught, brought back. Captain shackles him by the neck um, for months on end while he's not working. He's always shackled. And um, a subsequent supply vessel saw this, uh, you know, Langlong shackled and was disturbed by it. And um, uh, when he got back to shore, began working with uh, human rights advocates to figure a way to get back out there and to buy Langlong's freedom. Um, And this shackling is really acute and dramatic. uh, The more often form of this sort of sea slavery as, as it's often called doesn't involve shackles uh that are metal but rather shackles that are financial so it's a debt bonded situation it's the same basic trafficking story but it's one in which the labor broker who brings the guy in or the kid in you know i interviewed folks who were as young as 13 on some of these boats they come in without a cent to their name now they have a debt with the guy that brought him in and when they get to the port that labor broker or trafficker Sells the kid or the guy to the captain, and says, and the captain pays what three hundred bucks maybe um, for the guy's labor. He goes on board, and uh, the labor broker goes back to the border and does his thing, and the captain goes off to sea, having paid for this individual to work for him, and that's debt bondage. And the the worker, the kid, the guy, the young man, um, is not allowed to leave until that debt disappears. And this is not an unusual thing in the developing world in factories and mines and such. It's illegal and it's immoral, but it's the norm in many places. But at sea, it's acutely worse just because, you know, there's no bookkeeping and there's no real accounting of today you earn 20 bucks towards your $300 debt. Um, You're on that boat as long as the captain wants you there. And for some of these guys, that's several years.
1: Uh, are there governments other entities uh, t- trying to combat this it's especially hard out in the seas it's international waters and uh, things are more in a gray area
2: yeah there are governments and NGO and, and nonprofit groups um, that are working hard and have been long before I got on this um, and the Thai government in particular especially after you know five years four years ago there was a lot of attention thrown at this um, by by this series in the series and the Ala ocean and by the associated press and by the guardian and some others, um, and, and the U S state department and others really kind of all, uh, built a crescendo of concern around this problem, um, largely based on work by in country organizations, uh, that had been working on it prior. And, um, you know, the, the, the in the case of the Thai government, you know, I went back, to thailand to re-report all this and to go deeper than i had initially gone and spent a lot of time with the government as a thai government on you know uh, at sea inspections and and really tried to fair in a fair but rigorous way um look at what they were doing well and not so well in countering this and um uh, it's a bore, you know it, it's a, a bit bit of a dry policy discussion there that I won't bore your readers mm-hmm. with but but it, it's it's certainly urgent and and it's in the book that you know th- there does seem to be in some quarters really good intentions um, there's also just endemic corruption and and um, a lack of capabilities at how to actually implement how to catch this stuff you know uh, the type of investigative means that um, need to be at your disposal to. to to get to break into these trafficking pipelines um, is not something you can develop overnight.
1: If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, New York Times investigative reporter Ian Urbina about his latest book, The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. That's where I want to go next. Um, Mr. Urbina, um, your experiences, uh, you know, most of us will never be out there. Uh, on board a, a ship, long journey. Um, tell us what it was like for you.
2: Um, you know, I, I, whenever I describe it to most normal people around me, they kind of um, think I'm crazy, uh, largely because the, the most intense um, uh, reporting experiences were on the worst Ships imaginable, and in that distinctly journalistic way, it's it's like you know you're you're craving um, to experience and see, and therefore chronicle things that 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 um, are not you know that are virgin you know that that have not been accessed before, and so and this realm you know um, has a lot of virgins now. Uh, there's just Very few, very little journalism happening out there. I mean, my personal experience was I'm very lucky I I don't get seasick um, very easily. I think maybe in five years it happened once or twice. Um, I do get land sick pretty intensely, and uh, so when I get back to shore, I still have uh, my pendulum is still stuck in in offshore kind of motion, and I have uh, odd um, Bed spins, standing up, if you will, um, and sometimes they're up. Um, the I, I, I find the place, the space out there, really weirdly um, addictive and scary and beautiful and otherworldly. Um, it's at once inducing of agoraphobia and claustrophobia, all at the same time, because you're in at unusually open space. I grew up in cities. I'm used to having limited view of the horizon, trees and tall buildings and people everywhere. And this is the opposite, you know, sky as far as you can see and just nothing to lay your eyes on. Uh, So it's agoraphobic in that you're just so exposed. And when weather starts kicking up, you feel really exposed. It's claustrophobic in the sense that you're in this little capsule, you know, stuck with these people and for a long time. And, um, and within the capsule, everyone has sub-niches that they're supposed to maintain. And you really got to learn how to be small, not just liter- literally, not physically change your size, but just in personality, how much attention you take, how how much you talk or don't, um, you know, walking down the hall, just how to move differently. And and I find that all really interesting, sort of like I'm on a spaceship and having to rejigger fundamentals. Um, so, you know, I really like it. I just got back a week and a half ago from another. I'm still reporting on this stuff. and was in the Gambia at sea, and um, I, I was just reminded, as we leave port, this strange kind of existential exhale that comes over me um, as I head back out into the Great Expand. Um, I, I really quite like it.
1: You were describing to your publisher in an interview, uh, you're out there on a fishing boat. Um, you know, the 15-foot swells and the the deck is covered with fish innards. It becomes like a skating rink. Uh, <laughs> there's some dangers.
2: Yeah, and that's quite right. I think um, the dangers that are there, sure, there are bad people that my photographer, a Brazilian guy named Fabio Nascimento, and I kind of um, came in contact with and had to Extract ourselves from, you know, very carefully. But but the the real dangers, the more prevalent dangers, are the ones you describe. It's the conditions. So like you say, you know, it's this. In imagine a a developing world factory, right? So none of the OSHA guards on any of the machinery um, that's running twenty four seven, especially at night, um, the factory floor happens to function like an elevator that's going up three floors and down three floors continually. It's also skating rink slippery, and there's jagged stuff everywhere, some of it moving, um, uh, fishing gear and, you know, spinning winches. And... and they're crowded. You know, like when, when it's heavy on and you're pulling in a huge, you know, 50-ton net, um, you have 40 Cambodians who are really savvy and adept on their feet and many of them barefoot and I've never seen them fall. And, you know, um, you gotta, you're trying to, you know, film and report, but you really got to stay out of their way and not step on the wrong thing. And then, you know, there's all these hidden dangers like, you know, you need to know where the pipes are that heat up you know, red hot heat up because um, if you're rocking and you're trying to climb from the back to the front, and you're shimmying across a railing to get around these barrels where all the ice is, you grab the wrong pipe and you're going to burn the skin off your hand, which is one thing that I did, you know, on one trip because I hadn't done my homework and figured out how to crawl across safely or. You know, you're going to, you know, little, little threats, too. Um, I had a bad habit before this reporting of biting my nails uh, and um, on an early trip got a really severe infection and and realized that could kill you. You know, if you don't have antibiotics with you and you're not going to be back to shore for weeks um, and that gets infected enough, they're not going back. You're lucky to be on there as a guest. They're not going to change their so you just really need to be careful about hygiene, and, and really, and these are dirty places. I mean, there's rotting fish and rats and roaches, and every you know everywhere. Uh, so um, that part of it is really grueling in a way that I've never experienced in uh, on land reporting. Mm.
1: And this is where our fish is coming from that, that I'm eating. That's uh, not reassuring. <laughs>
2: there's some cleaning yeah, yeah. steps in between what okay. I describe and your plate, hopefully. But, yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was fascinated. Uh, you have talked about, you, you referenced this a little bit earlier, about the social mores. Um, in fact, you, you say you, uh, on one of these ships, you talk to the British first mate. He says, you want to fit in? Take up as little space as possible. He wasn't just talking about physical space.
2: Yeah. Yeah, You know, th- there's this thing that sort of I don't know if I did well in the book or not, but I tried, which was, you know, I came from a cultural anthropology background, and I, I kind of was viewing the space and the culture and, and these people and their language and their laws or lack thereof, their norms, their lore, everything, their hierarchies, uh, their modes of discipline, like a, as if I had been airlifted into an Amazon tribe, right, you know, that no one had checked in with for forever, you know, um, And so I was trying to take it all in, and one of the things I noticed that felt very distinct was the role of silence on these ships and um, how much reverence there was to silence and how it lived um, in some places on the ship um, bigger than others. So you're in the engine room versus you're in the galley, meaning the dining room, kitchen um, versus the bridge, meaning where the officers and the captain are. Um, all of well, the engine room is not a silent place. Uh, it's an incredibly noisy place. But in terms of chit chat, it's completely impossible and dysfunctional. And if you attempt it, it really irks the engineers because they got to take off their he- ear, you know, gear to not be rude and to try to figure out what you're saying to them. And and it's very irksome. So you don't talk in the engine room. You know, you just don't unless there's a serious emergency. In the galley, people are usually between shifts. They're either just waking up from their four hours of sleep and about to head back down to the factory, to, and they're kind of head down, buried in their space. And you may talk with someone, but you're not talking with the group because the groups are on different shifts, and you're keeping your voice down. You know, you're really kind of library etiquette there, but the talking is kosher. Um you get on the bridge, and um, talking is a super hierarchical thing. You don't enter the bridge without permission, uh, without verbally asking for permission. Um, and if you're, and what talking is occurring is um, cockpit type, militaristic, um, get to the point, functionalistic, you know, kind of utilitarian conversation, unless it's the middle of the night and there's nothing happening and, and these guys are passing the time, making sure they don't run over someone, and those guys might talk. But generally speaking, so this is just one example, I'm probably going too deep here, but of um, sort of a cultural norm that was took some getting used to, and when that guy told me, you know, be small, take up little space, he was talking about, um, you know, uh respect the silence, respect the hierarchy, um, don't spread your stuff out physically, but also don't um, be a large presence.
1: Uh, you, do, you were in some dicey situations. Uh, you, you went out to Somalia, right, where, where you report that piracy is making a bit of a comeback.
2: Yes, it, uh, you know, I, the Somalia experience was, yeah, among the hairiest, uh, and it wasn't meant to be. Um, I went there actually initially intending to tell a good news story of this one, the effort of the country to better police its water and, and this sort of unusual collaboration that had occurred between law enforcement in Kenya and Somalia to, to nab these uh, scofflaw poachers who you know, had been raiding Somali waters for years. And when I got there, I got to Mogadishu, and then we had to start this long trek to this one state called Puntland. Which, if you look at the map, it's the, literally the rhino horn part of Africa. It's the horn that sticks towards Yemen. And Puntland is a state. Well, Somalia is um, really not a functioning nation. Um, it's kind of Mogadishu barely controlled by federal authorities, and then a bunch of tribally run, sort of ostensibly called you know states. And Puntland is kind of like Texas to Washington, D.C. It's part of the country, but really doesn't view itself as such and culturally sort of resents any attempt by federal authorities to impose uh, rule there, you know, just... Uh, and Poonland is also in a really dicey spot and that a lot of the illegal arms and and guerrillas that are heading over to Yemen to fight and coming back they launch from Poonland. a lot of the pirates from your Captain Phillips movie they were launching from Puntland a lot of the illegal cot, which is a kind of a dr- drug it's a it's a A plant that's true, it's an amphetamine essentially that's common over there, is in Puntland. So, Puntland is this really lawless place and um, it has one of the bigger ports, Borsasso. And so, Fabio and I wanted to go there and tell this story of this success. I won't bore you now with the story, you can (laughs) read the book, but um, when we got there, everything changed and the invitation we had received from local authorities dissipated overnight when they feared that we were going to actually report on what became the more interesting story, which ultimately I did report on because they were so worried about it, which was deep-seated corruption by Pullman authorities who were in cahoots with really abusive um, foreign fishing boats that were you know, using, routinely using human slaves and involved in all sorts of illegal stuff. and. And there was a, a fleet of them parked right there when we got there. And, and um, so we fell out of favor with the local authorities. We got trapped uh, and had to hide out for a while until we could find a way out of uh, Putland because you can't travel by road because of ISIS and al-Shabaab terrorist groups. So uh, so that was a very scary, frankly, um, experience, and I'm glad uh, we made it out <laughs>
1: and yet you keep going back. I guess there's an adventurous spirit you have to have to do this kind of work.
2: Yeah, I think you get addicted to the story, and you also feel that if you're going to believe the sort of public service journalism fifth estate narrative that there is some utility served by shining a light on these abuses and and you maybe can contribute in some way to correct them by chronicling them, then you kind of feel a growing sense of duty that the worst stuff you see and then you come back to your comfortable home, you feel kind of obligated to go back and continue trying to do right by those people.
1: Do you feel like your reporting, reporting of others, is moving the needle in some of these abuses?
2: You know, on Monday I do, Tuesday I don't, mm-hmm. Wednesday I kind of, I'm not sure. You know, it, it varies. I think, um, I don't think I'm, if you think of this place and this topic and this lawlessness as a war, I don't think I can do the math to figure out if am I helping the war. I do think isolated battles on individual topics on certain fronts, um, the reporting is helping sometimes a lot, you know, you see it. Lang Long, the guy I talked about, the shackled guy, you know, his life, I think, was radically changed for the better by what came of that reporting. Um, I think the Thai government moved a lot um, in response to the reporting um, on this issue, um, you know, and, and other, other fronts, you know, the reporting of abusive stowaways, the reporting of a murder that we caught on camera, you know, um, reporting of intentional dumping by ships these isolated topical targets that we went after, I do think there's been some progress. As mm. a result.
1: You write in this uh, uh, interview with your publisher that I referenced before, you, you, you say something very interesting. Um, there's an emotional toll, and it's it's not the emotional toll that I would have guessed. It's uh, You say you talk about when you come home and you feel like you're living in between two worlds.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think it's maybe... Akin on a much, I will always want to be very respectful and careful about making this comparison, but when people, when I've read about people returning from war, you know, and the sort of challenges of reacclimating, um, I feel like they are describing something that um, is similar to what I f- have felt. And I think it's at root largely because you're seeing, you're, I'm spending a long time in a very, very different place, seeing very intense things and living, you know, in a way that's so different, you know, staying up for 48 hours and then sleeping for six and then, you know, quick, you know, just everything is so different from my normal life here at home. Um, And then the things I'm seeing are really um, uh, emotionally draining. And when you get back, you – I – struggle sometimes with um, figuring out how to, how and whether to uh, describe them to the people, to my family, you know, um, because in the act of trying to describe them, it sounds like you're amping it up, and that feels gross, you know, um, and disingenuous. But in the act of not describing them, you are alienated from the people you love, and they're wondering what you've seen over there and um, why you're reluctant to talk about it. Uh, uh, so I think that emotionally is something that just is difficult, and it's also why you get very close with the people you report with. You know, fa- sort of, you know, like I said, Fabio, my photographer. And, uh, um, there's a bond there that I think is very unusual, and, and and I've heard this from other reporters who spend a long time in war zones and they get very close because you've just shared. Uh, those experiences, and with only that person.
1: There's another thing you talk about, and this I know. Good journalists do uh, do struggle with this. You've talked about it uh, that you're trying to help people by getting the word out, right? But then you worry about exploitation, and there's a mm-hmm. there can be a fine line. I wonder how you deal with that.
2: I don't. I don't know whether I deal with it well. I mean, I, I do grapple with it. and You summed it up perfectly. I think like. Um, if you're honest about this kind of work, then you have to reckon with the possibility that you're engaged in misery porn, you know, and that you are um, profiting in a certain way from uh, the agony of others. And because you're bringing their stories back and you're putting them in the newspaper or in a book or in a movie and, and it's promoting your career and you're talking about them on radio interviews, you know? And so it's sort of um, all, on the other hand, the hope is that you're doing that for the purpose of raising awareness and and, and all that. But um, uh, I think, yeah, and, and I, I don't know, I, A, I, the things I try to do to cope with it are, one, be really rigorously honest about um, the tension there and and think about it as often as I can. And number two, always well, I try to funnel the sense of guilt I have and worry I have into doing a better job at the chronicling job, you know, you know, and when I'm in theater, if I'm falling asleep and, you know, I often get an extra surge of motivation when I think, okay, I'm only going to be here for one more week and I should push a little bit harder to do right by these folks. uh, And so let me type up those notes or let me, head back out on deck um, to go talk with that guy that I didn't get time to and, and capture more and reduce it better. And, you know, just you really lean into it a little bit harder to, as motivated by those worries. That That's just what I try to do with that negative energy.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just joined us, we we're talking with Ian Urbina. He's an investigative reporter for the New York Times. The latest book, fascinating book, The Outlaw Ocean Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. We'll take another break, come back with our last 10 minutes or so. When we come back, I want to talk about um, this. This is something, again, I didn't know. There's a large number of people stranded at sea. I want to talk about that. And then the, the environmental concerns. In some ways, the oceans have been turned into a junkyard. There's illegal dumping and other environmental concerns. I want to talk about those two things uh, from the book. The book is The Outlaw Ocean, and Ian Urbina is the author. More following this break.
0: UPR special features reporting is made possible by our members and USU Office of Global Engagement, providing global learning opportunities at the Study Abroad Fair, Wednesday, September 25th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in the USU Taggart Student Center. Details at studyabroad.usu.edu. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Thompson Premier Lighting and Appliance for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. We would also like to thank our listeners and members. Remember, you can now listen and contribute on our new UPR app. Hey, Lael, what's the deal with appetizers? You know, Jen, appetizers are those tasty little bites that whet your appetite for the main meal. Ah, so it's like our UPR segment, Bread and Butter. Tasty little radio bites about cooking, eating, and all the ingredients in between. We should invite the listeners to brunch. Good idea. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. for Bread and Butter, your locally sourced appetizer to the splendid table. Now there's a satisfying meal and all on Utah Public Radio.
1: You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with Ian Urbina. He is an investigative reporter with the New York Times. The latest book's fascinating book, The Outlaw Ocean Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. Uh, if you have a question or comment, uh, you can get that to us uh, at uh, upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. Ian Urbina's uh, Twitter account is fascinating. Um, Ian underscore Urbina, at Ian underscore Urbina. And uh, you can find more about the book at the book's website, theoutlawocean.com. I want to get into people stranded at sea, but I, I'm Ian Urbina. I'm looking at your Twitter account. You have a video here of a near collision. And you say, I experienced ship collisions in Palau, Thailand, and Indonesia. I can honestly tell you it's more violent and panic-inducing than a car crash. Uh, it sounds like it would be.
2: Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's kind of slower. A, the stakes are higher in some ways, right, because if you, you're going to sink if, at the end of that collision, um, which is kind of scarier than um, what ends in a car crash. Uh, and then the things are bigger, right? You know, you're on a huge ship, and um, the collisions are often, they, they kind of drag out. Um, and so it's just once the one vessel hits the other, it kind of keeps on hitting for sometimes a couple minutes, you know, because they're almost attached to each other and uh, so for all those reasons it's it's really scary and, and a lot of the vessels I was on were not steel-sided kind of patrol vessels like the one in that video, but rather um, fiberglass, you know, um, cutters. And uh, those things are just not built for collision. You know, mm. It's glass. Um, so uh, anyway, it is it is very scary.
1: Uh, so a, a large number of people stranded at sea. I, I didn't know that. How does this happen?
2: So, yeah, I think this in some ways is one of those tragedies that, you know, rape and murder and, and slavery are really intense and dramatic and grab attention, but, um, uh, you know, abandonment of seafarers is far more widespread and, and in some ways equally consequential because it ruins people and their families and unfolds in slow motion. What, what typically happens, the scenario is, um, you know, the, the higher end, the container ships are different order, but the, the, the middle tier uh, vessels that move cargo, and fishing vessels are in um, markets uh, um, that have very tight margins. You can't make a whole lot of money on them, and you really got to be careful. And so a lot of these go um, financially belly up, the owners do. And a lot of them are are owned by shell companies that are within shell companies that are within shell companies, and there's a P.O. box business on top of that, and a guy over in a country you never even knew was involved that actually owns all things. So they're layered – In really intricate ways and what all that spells is um, when a ship runs into problems someone buys it from someone else um, it it doesn't pay a debt and they get hit with charges um, something breaks that's too expensive to fix you know whatever Um, sometimes the owners or the ownership company cuts their losses and walks away and those ships are sometimes at sea, and they have twenty, thirty guys on them, um, and uh, usually from developing world. And um, the the captain just can't get the phone call returned, and has no idea what's going on. And they run out of fuel, and they drop anchor maybe a mile offshore because they can't, they don't have clearance to come into port. So they but they're trying to stay near land until they can figure out what what's going on. And and this is freakishly a common occurrence, and. It's really dramatic because um, sometimes for upwards of a year or two years, these guys are stuck on this sort of floating prison cell, and um, they don't have the papers or the money or the government clearance to come to land. They don't have any way to fly home. They don't have the fuel to to direct the ship back home. Maybe something's broken. Maybe they just don't have the funds. And so they just wait. And usually... Um, Uh, you know, Mission to Seafarers or one of these amazing organizations that specializes in ports on these very issues gets involved. But, you know, these are tiny organizations with a staff of three and they're only in a handful of places around the world. And so if you're unlucky enough for this to happen elsewhere, um, then you're kind of out of luck. And um, so I just, I I had heard a lot about this problem as I traveled the world. and, And so I focused for a chapter on, how it unfolds, and I I shadowed one of these heroic, um, in this case, a a minister uh, with Mission to Seafarers who, in the Middle East, where it's especially acute for reasons of the oil industry and shifting prices and such, um, was dealing with a lot of these cases on a daily basis and was going out and bringing water to these guys and, and trying to negotiate some sort of method for them to get home.
1: Just have a couple minutes left. Uh, maybe the the two minute version of uh, and this is unfair of the environmental problems out there. It's not only ships uh, dumping, but it but it's us, right? And uh, all the plastics that we're sending out into the oceans. It's uh, it's become a real problem.
2: Yeah, I mean the fast version, like you said, is you know a huge culprit is us on land, and and it's it's you know uh, landfills that are too close to rivers, and and a lot of plastic that ends up in rivers that eventually ends up in the ocean, and and um uh you know the statistic that's you know often bandied about is there'll be more plastic by weight in the ocean by 2040 than than fish um so uh yeah the the there's a real problem of of uh of dumping uh, in an in, indirect and direct dumping uh, at sea
1: um, and we'll uh, we'll send people to the book for some fascinating stories, including sealand, which is a, there's a family that's taken over an island they declared their own nation surprisingly difficult to settle sovereignty out there I guess
2: it is it, it, that is one of the one of the funner chapters to write and report
1: yeah. Uh, and there's a gynecologist who's providing abortions uh, offshore in uh, adjacent to nations that uh, that have a, uh, made uh, abortion illegal so a bunch of stories uh, in the book uh, so just a minute left where are, are you're still out uh, going to be going out there reporting on this where, where are you off to next
2: yeah so I'm, I'm gonna Stick with the topic and report for another four or five years on this, Uh, just back from the Gambia, before that was in South and North Korean waters, and next up is Libya, looking at the refugee situation and and refugees that are trying to travel from Africa to Europe. Um, So, uh, continuing on with the reporting.
1: Well, it's fascinating, important reporting. The book is The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. And Ian Urbina, the author, has been with us for the hour. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll soak in the soulful sounds of rhythm and blues from New Orleans to Africa and South America. Who
0: knows what tomorrow will bring? Maybe sunshine and maybe rain.
1: I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Rhythm and
0: Blues, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
1: Utah is home to breathtaking natural wonders and rigorous scientific research. And the issues affecting our natural world are important to the life of every Utahan. That's why we're answering the question, so what? Science Utah is your home for all things science. Our team of science reporters, most of them graduate students from USU's Ecology Center, are updating you on the latest in science news and providing commentary on pressing issues. Because scientific topic, from air quality to our national parks and even gene editing, matters to Utah. Join us as we explore the world of Science Utah, available at UPR.org, the UPR app, and anywhere you get your podcasts.